It's good to have you all in worship. Uh, if you're newer with us, my name is Brian, one of the pastors here uh, at the church. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and not turn to anything yet, because we're going to be kind of all over the place. Uh, and so if uh, you don't have a Bible of your own, you'll notice there's one in the pew rack in front of you here in this room. And in the East Auditorium, uh, there's some folks walking around. Just slip a hand up. And I encourage you to grab one today, because we're going to be, instead of you know delving into one passage uh, a, a great deal, we're actually going to capture several passages to capture, you could say, a, a bigger story of what uh, we want to look at in our story, or I guess you could say our message today. And so as you're grabbing your Bibles, I want to run a quote by you and see what your take on it is. Uh, it's a quote I heard at a conference, I guess about 15 years ago. Uh, it's from a guy by the name of Tony Campolo. Some of you might be familiar with him. He's a professor of sociology at Eastern University. And uh, he said this kind of in light of the series we've been looking at. He said, Something to the effect of mixing the church with politics, mixing the church with politics is kind of like mixing ice cream with cow manure. <laughs> he, he says, it may not do much to the manure, but it sure does mess up the ice cream. And so, in many ways, that's kind of the tension we've been looking at in this series, In Not Of, as we've been examining what is the role of a follower of Jesus Christ uh, who lives in this world, in this political season, but you might say of uh, another allegiance of the kingdom of God. And that phrase, in not of, it comes from uh, a paraphrase of the words of Jesus in a prayer for us as his church in John 17, where Jesus says, they, my followers, that's you and me, are not of the world any more than I, Jesus, am of the world. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And so the idea is that if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we are followers of his way, committed to his kingdom, how then do we live ultimately of citizens in his kingdom while temporarily, you could say, residing in the kingdom of this world. And so that's what we've been trying to discover through uh, this series, and you could say more uh, acutely through this politically charged season. How do we live in this world, but yet at the same time, not of it? And so over the last two weeks, uh, we looked at a message uh, pre-election, and last week we looked at a message post-election. Uh, uh, but today we really want to move beyond the political front. We really want to kind of move forward, kind of as we end this series and move ahead, to really look at more specifically just diving into these words that Jesus gives us, this paraphrase, in 
but not of, that we might kind of walk away, walk forward, move forward in our lives, knowing how to do both of these well, because both of them are important. We need to recognize that we need to live of Jesus' kingdom well by effectively also living in this world at the same time. And so as we dive into both those words, we're going to spend some time looking at of and some time looking at in. And uh, just some simple definitions of what we mean by that, as we're going to see laid out in scripture, you could say of When we look at the word of in this setting, of speaks to our identity, who we are, what are we of, what are we made of, this is our identity, while in, we're going to see, speaks to our mission, and that the two interplay, that what we are of is going to inform how we live in uh, this world. And so, let's get started with that word of, and I invite you to grab your Bibles. Um, We are going to literally try to make the case, or I think effectively make the case based on God's word, um, walking through the entire Bible as quickly as we can uh, to say, you could say, to discover if, you know, God had a campaign speech for his kingdom, how would we find that in the pages of scripture? And so we're going to work our way, again, pretty quickly from Genesis to Revelation, and you can flip and keep along if you want at your own risk. Paper cuts may ensue because we're going to try to move pretty quickly. Um, But we're going to go ahead and start here in the beginning, uh, Genesis 1-1, the first chapter and the first verse of the Bible, and we'll get our way to Revelation by the time it's all said and done. And so you could say our story begins, well, obviously in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, at a time once upon a time where there were no kings and there were no presidents. This is how the story begins. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says this, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And then from there, we see the first two chapters of Genesis. God creates. He creates heaven and earth, land and sea, plants and animals, and then the crown of his creation, you and me, humankind. And he does that in his image. And then when you move from Genesis chapter 2 and you come to uh, God creating his people, we see that the only king, the only president is God himself. Uh, And then in the case where there are earthly rulers that come along, God is always working either in spite of them or working for his will through them. And so uh, we're going to see that as we unfold the pages of the Old Testament. Um, Go ahead and flip over to Genesis chapter 12. And this is where we see um, God establishing, you could say, his nation as king. Uh, in Genesis 12:2, through a man named Abram, whose name would become Abraham, God says this, I will make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you into a great nation and I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. And so God as king starts off saying, my people, I'm going to bless them. I'm going to bless you, but you are going to be blessed in order that you might be a blessing to others. Okay, and so he starts his nation uh, as as king, and then we move through the pages of the Old Testament. We get from Genesis to Exodus, where we encounter uh, the story, you know, of Moses, where um, God's people are enslaved and um, under the, the rule of a different king, Pharaoh of Egypt. But God, as their king, he rescues them into the promised land. Then you move into the timeline of the story of Judges. And the Judges, um, it's not Judges like we would think of Judges as someone ruling over, a, residing over a courtroom. But the Judges in the Old Testament, they really were more like military leaders. But still, in this time, 
these military leaders all understood God was our king. God was our ruler. He was the one who was leading over us. And so you get to the time of the judges, and then you get to 1 Samuel. And Samuel is actually the last, of the, time, the last judge in all the judges. So if you want to turn to 1 Samuel 8, and I'll cheat for you a little bit. If you have a pew Bible, uh, it's uh, page 388. So I'll help a little bit there. And in 1 Samuel 8, this is really where you could say the whole idea of in but not of the world really becomes an issue, you could say politically, for God's people in that everything changes with a request that the people have to Samuel. Um, Chapter 8, starting in verse 5, the people say to Samuel, you are old. What an endearing opening line. You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways, which was true. Things were not good, but this was their their request in light of things not being good. They said, now, in light of this, appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. In other words, the people are saying, we no longer want God to be our king. We want to have a human king like all the other nations. But when they said this, verse 6, Uh, Give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. You know, as I was studying this this past week, I discerned that this has to be probably one of the saddest lines in all of scripture. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me, God says, as their king. He goes on to say, verse eight, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now go ahead and listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. And then from there, Samuel uh, spends several verses warning the people, hey, this is what a king is going to demand of you. This is what he's going to take from you. But nevertheless, verse 19 says the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard this, When he heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord, and the Lord answered, listen to them and give them their king. And so for the first time throughout the history of God's people, they choose a second king. They choose another king alongside the king of kings. And as Jesus would later say in Luke 16, 13, you cannot serve two masters. That in the end, you will grow to love one and despise the other. And so to illustrate how this tension, I think, plays out in every sphere of life, that you cannot serve two masters, um, this really came to a head for me actually this past October during, uh, of all things, Major League Baseball postseason play. Um, realizing you cannot serve two masters. Um, let's see if I find my notes here. I was all in the Bible and I got to get to that. Uh, you see, when I moved to th- uh, Decatur 13 years ago, um, I recognized within about five minutes of living in central Illinois, you have to make a decision <laughs> as to which master you will align yourself with. You will be a Cards fan or a Cubs fan where never the two shall meet. Um, and so pretty quickly, actually, I found myself, sorry to one side of you, aligning myself 
with the cups. You're kidding me. To which you might say, 13 years you've been here, and never have you said anything about baseball or the Cubs. How convenient that you might bring out your hat now. Yeah. Now, the story has a little bit of a twist, actually, for me, in that while I did choose to align myself with the Cubs as, you could say, an underdog team, um, you know, that's really, I think, what my heartbeat was. I've always been a fan of the underdog, patiently waiting for them to show up. And if you were to psychoanalyze, you know, why I would align myself with, you know, at the time, kind of a struggling, never-to-win franchise versus, you know, pretty clear dominant Cardinals you know, club, um, you'd have to, a good psychologist would probably take me back to my childhood, where many of you might not know this, but that prior to moving to South Carolina uh, at the age of 12, I spent the first 12 years of my life in Cleveland, Ohio. In Cleveland, Ohio, as a pretty diehard Cleveland sports fans. And uh, for those of you who know Cleveland, yeah. You know, we are the only ones that rival the 108 years that the Cubs had with 68 years of drought of our own. And so it was, and this is, yeah, so this is me top left uh, as a little guy at Indian Stadium. Top right, uh, that's actually when we lived in South Carolina, 1995, game one of the World Series. We went to uh, that game where, of course, we went on to lose. Uh, Bottom right, that is, uh, again, just some proof for the pudding. Uh, that's our den where we have all our Indians paraphernalia, me and my two younger brothers. And so we were, I'm just, just showing you, we were, we were all in. Um, and so you could imagine that when, and, and, this, and I have my little app on my phone, my MLB at play app that I can follow like my favorite teams. And for the last like 10 years, it's always been the Cubs and the Indians. I was always safe having an American League team and a National League team until the two most unlikely teams in all of baseball end up in the World Series together, to which I am then faced, literally, with two masters. And so, sorry folks, I had no choice, but I had to root, go back to my genesis for my Cleveland Indians. Um, and I was, it was great, I loved rooting for the Cleveland Indians, I loved the Cleveland Indians, and I still liked the Cubs when we were up three to one. But then slowly and surely, as the week passed on and we got to a home run in the first inning of game seven, I found myself discovering Jesus was right. <laughs> I still loved the Indians, but I was growing to despise the Cubs. <laughs> because Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters, you will love one and hate the other. And so I don't know what to think now because I, the Cubs, I kind of feel mixed. So maybe, I don't know, Cards fans might be a free agent. We'll, we'll see. I, I'm not real sure how the dust is going to settle for me on this. And if Cub fans, you do us the favor, Indians, if you could pass the baton of that lovely saying you've had for decades, you can now say to us, there's always, yes, Indians fans, there's always next year. And so in the end, you cannot serve two masters. They will come to a head and you will grow to love one and despise the other in all spheres of life. And really, that's what the Israelites discover. That's what they discover when they choose a human king to be a second master against the king of kings. And that's what we see through the pages of the Old Testament, that if you go from 1 Samuel 8 on through the rest of it, that you get the mixing of kings and pharaohs or presidents and politics with the King of Kings, the one true God, and what you find are story after story of, to use Tony Campola's quote, the mixing of ice cream and cow manure.
And so God does. He hands them over to their worldly desires. They say, hey, we want a king. So he gives them a king, recognizing that they have rejected him as the one true king. And so then we see these earthly kings. We see uh, the story of Saul and then David and then Solomon. Uh, You know, some good things happen, but plenty of difficulties within each of those dynasties. Then from there, things go from bad to worse as the nation of Israel splits through civil war into a northern and southern kingdom to which between Israel and then southern Judah, they have between them 39 different kings. I think it's 19 in the north and 20 in the south. A few good ones, but mostly bad until finally northern kingdom of Israel is uh, wiped out by the Assyrians in 722 BC, no more to be. And then the southern kingdom of Judah is exiled to Babylon in 586 because as Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve two masters. But God does not come through the end of the pages of the Old Testament going into the New Testament with a giant, I told you so, because that's not who our God is. But in his grace, in his commitment, in his promise to his people and to now us, to a remnant of those people who remain, that God saves. God saves through the stories and the pages and the wars and the struggles of the Old Testament, a remnant of his people. He saves them of what the kings had left behind to bring into our existence, you could say, a new kind of king a new kind of king. And so if you want to flip over from the story of the Old Testament to the prophets of the Old Testament, we'll look at a couple real quick. Isaiah chapter 9, as we go into our Advent series, expecting something more, which by the way, let me encourage you to invite people to the Christmas series uh, to to learn that there's something more uh, here in this world than what this world has to offer. Um, Isaiah 9, 6. The prophecy about this king that would be to come. This is for, I'll let you get there, I'm sorry, that's rude. Page 1028, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then of his kingship, it says, of his greatness, of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from, the time, from, this, from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And then one more prophecy, Zechariah 9, 9, a few more pages over. I'll give you the cheat, 1,451. The prophet Zechariah, speaking to the king that is to come. says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king, it says. Your true king comes to you, and he is righteous and victorious, but also lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this speaks to the prophecy of Palm Sunday of how Jesus would um, enter into the final week of his time here on earth before his death and resurrection. And so as we know, the story goes, Jesus does in fact come and we see that story in the Christmas story in Luke chapter two where uh, the angel visits the uh, shepherds by night to tell them that the God of heaven has left his throne there and he has come to be a baby born on earth. Luke chapter two, verse nine. We'll get familiar with these passages here in the days ahead. It says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. This is talking about the shepherds. And they were terrified, but the angel said to them, do not be afraid. 
I bring you good news. I will bring you good, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people that today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And so it's within that Christmas story. And, you know, our minds, they go directly to, you could say, when it comes to Christmas, we think obviously the pageantry and the presents and all the things that come with that. But what you need to recognize in the Christmas story is um, when it comes to what we've been looking at over the last few weeks, this is not a cute Christmas story, but actually the story of Christmas is the most, you could say, politically charged conversation um, in all of scripture. And I want to try to take uh, a few moments to just reveal what this is in my studies that I thought was it's pretty cool, actually, to see how this comes about. Because there's a lot of words that we use when we um, talk about Jesus and following him that are actually not unique or new to being a follower of Jesus, but they were actually words that were part of the political environment of that time that Jesus actually reclaimed and redefined. And so just a few of those. Um, the word evangelion is the word for gospel, good news. That's pretty much a pretty safe church word, the gospel. But actually, that word was a word used prior politically representing an imperial pronouncement which was accompanied by flags and political ceremony. And it was to pretty much communicate the, quote, good news that an empire's throne, a new, a new heir to the empire's throne had been born. But for followers of Jesus, we know that the good news of Jesus is the kingdom of God at hand. That's what the gospel is. So a few more. The term son of God. That was a term politically used. It was a popular title for kings and rulers and emperors of the day. It was the term uh, that Alexander the Great took for himself, Augustus, and also the lineage of Julius Caesar. But followers of Jesus Christ know that this is the, the ultimate reality of who Jesus is, the son of the one true God. And there's a lot of other ones. The words savior, Emmanuel, Lord, Messiah, if we had more time to dive into them, we would see that these all had political understandings that Jesus is claiming and redefining. Uh, the word, here's one, proskunesis, uh, it's the word for worship. And it was a practice, politically speaking, a practice involving the act of prostration or bowing down in submission before a ruler or an emperor. You know, so, you know, saying submitting to that ruling authority. But we know that worship in Jesus' kingdom is bowing before God in praise and adoration. It's actually the word that the Magi uh, talk about in Luke 2 in the Christmas story where they bow down before Jesus in the Christmas story. Um, pistis is the word for faith and politically. At the time, it was a term used for trust in, allegiance to, and hope in the Pax Romana. You could say the peace of Rome. That's what Latin for the peace of Rome. That's where your trust and allegiance and hope was to be. That's where your faith was. But for a follower of Jesus Christ, in direct response, the term means to be trust in, to have allegiance to, and hope in Jesus and Philippians 4, 7, the peace of Christ, which transcends the earth's or Romans' understanding of it. Uh, a couple more. Basilia. This is what we've been talking about really this whole series, the word kingdom. The word kingdom politically, it was a term used for the Roman Empire of which, of course, Caesar was king. But for Jesus, the topic of kingdom was actually the topic he talked about more than any other topic in conversations that he had here on earth, that Jesus' kingdom was referring to the kingdom of God of which he said he is king of, of which that is the reason they killed him. You can't say you're king when Caesar is king. Uh, and then one more, uh, Perusia. 
Uh, the word literally means presence, and it uh, kind of, really, this brings us our timeline all the way to the book of Revelation, if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 19. Um, politically, the term parousia talked about the presence as in the return of Caesar to a particular town. But the parousia, I'm not I'm sure I'm saying that right, I think I am, talks about the second coming of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, which we understand and which they understood very clearly was a direct response to the parousia of Caesar. And so Revelation chapter nine, taking us Genesis to Revelation, the choirs, I didn't realize the choir was doing this, the choir sang from this verse here a little bit earlier this morning in both rooms. It says, verse 11, chapter 19, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. And then jumping down to verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so we see pretty clearly that when Jesus says, we are not of this world, but that, and our identity is not in the ruling authorities of this world, that that is a statement that doesn't in any way suggest, hey, politics over there and the God stuff over here. But we see very clearly by the response of Jesus coming that it is a direct response, a redefining of these ideas completely, that Jesus' kingdom is not to be in addition to the kingdoms of this world, but it is actually a direct response and clarification and a redefining of where our allegiance is as the kingdom of God. Because while we might live in this world as a follower of Christ, praise be to God, our identity is not of this world. As we see, as it is the way it has been from Genesis to Revelation, um, from beginning to the end. And so that's what it means for us to not be of this world, but to be from Genesis to Revelation of the kingdom of God and his kingship Ultimately, that is where our allegiance lies because only in understanding that, only in understanding who we are of, where our identity lies, can we then move into, okay then, based on that, how do we then live in this world effectively? And so that's what we want to look at next. We understand where we're of, and now we want to look at in. And so a couple of quick passages on that. First uh, Peter 2.11. Any paper cuts yet? These pages are so thin, you can't get paper cuts on these. Fine. Okay, 1 Peter 2.11. Talking about what it looks like to live in this world, even though you're not of it. Peter was uh, one of Jesus' disciples, the one who actually started the church. He writes this letter to us as a church saying, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles... Other translations say as resident aliens or temporary residents. Basically saying, you don't, you're not of this place. You are of another kingdom. So you're a temporary resident here. You're a foreigner, you're in exile. But while you live here, do this. Abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. And live such good lives among the pagans. Basically live such lives among those who don't know Jesus Christ. That though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. 
And so we see Peter's lining out that, okay, so what does it mean for us to be not of but in? He's not saying that not being in the world means you hide out from the world. You don't bunker down and hunker down until, you know, just being disengaged from the world until, you know, eventually you die or Jesus returns, whichever comes back. He makes very clear that we are not in, or you could say we're not of the world, but we are sent into the world. In fact, if I could change that phrase, maybe just make it a little more precise from in, not of, that has become very popular in Christian circles, you could say more accurately, it's really, it's not of, but sent into. In, not of means not of, but we are sent into. And uh, one more for that, that's actually, again, from the place it actually comes, John 17, the words of Jesus of which that paraphrase comes from. Let's see, where is that? Let's look one more time at that prayer. We get this saying, in, not of. As we're going to see, this is what Jesus calls us to as well. All right, real quick. Verse 15 in John 17. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you do protect them from the evil one. This is Jesus praying for us as his church. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And then here it is. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We have been sent into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Father, just as you are in me, I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's a powerful truth. It's a powerful clarification of what it means to be in but not of, in that Jesus says that we are sent into the world, that quote, verse 21 again, the world may believe that he, God, sent Jesus for them. And so that's what it means for us to be of his kingdom, but yet sent into this world. And so as we, again, move out of this series and kind of move forward out of this, this idea into what does it look like to live our lives, I want to leave you with, uh, I would say, a very practical prayer uh, that you can pray. We're going to pray here this morning, but also that you can pray uh, in settings, um, obviously in your own home. And it's something we actually did as a staff and elder uh, body at a retreat that I, it's been cool ever since that. I've actually seen several staff and elders praying this prayer the same way. And it's called, we call it a palms up prayer. And um, it uh, comes from the, uh, the uh, guy, a guy by the name of Bob Goff. He's a Christian lawyer and activist and speaker and author and all this stuff. Uh, and he wrote a book called Love Does. And he talks about in his law practice how he uh, encourages people to do this. So I'm just going to read to you straight from his book uh, this whole idea of a, of a palms up prayer. He talks about, uh, he describes how he instructs his clients when, uh, as far as a posture during deposition, that's really the setting, when you're, when you're being deposed. He says, uh, when my clients are being deposed, I tell them all the same thing each time. I say, sit in the chair and answer the questions, but do it with your hands, palms up the whole time. I tell them to literally have the backs of their hands on their knees and their palms toward the bottom of the table. He goes on to say, when their palms are up, they have an easier time being calm, honest, and accurate. And this is important because it's harder for them to get defensive. When people get angry or defensive, they tend to make mistakes. But nobody be, can be defensive with their palms up. Goff then goes on to explain kind of the non-law application setting. He says, palms up means that you have nothing to hide, nothing to gain, and nothing to lose. Palms up means you are strong enough to be vulnerable even when your enemies, or even with your enemies, even when you have been tremendously wrong. Jesus was palms up to the end. 
And so it's a physical posture and it's a heart posture uh, that I want to encourage you with um, to, to take. And I wanted to do this based on one passage. I promise, last verse, last one, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, and you want to turn any more. And this is how we're going to live out this prayer. It's a reflection of Hebrews. This is probably, if it's not my favorite passage, it's pretty close to my favorite passage because of how helpful it is in light of everything we've talked about. Hebrews chapter 12, it's on page 1,835 in your Bibles, says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, here's what I would suspect that coming out of this election series season, regardless of how you feel about how things went, that everybody, I would say, has, verse three, grown weary and lost some heart. Um, and if we could just maybe cast that net a little wider here today, um, because you know, this idea of being in, not of, and, and this idea of fixing our eyes on you, this, this is not unique to a political situation. This is encompassing of all of life situations and all of life circumstances that uh, we could say today, whatever has you growing weary and losing heart, whatever has you growing weary and losing heart, maybe it's challenges at work, maybe it's in your finances, um, maybe students, you know, as much as a free lunch is coming here at 1230 today, we know that you're going into the season of finals and the pressures of that. Uh, if you're married today, maybe it's struggles in your marriage. If you're single today, maybe it's struggles in being a single person. God uh, encourages whatever has us weary and losing heart that we might not stay that way by two things in this verse. Let us first, it says, look again at Hebrews, it says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles so that you can run with perseverance the life, the race that God has marked out for you. Um, and so I think about these things, it's, it's kind of a weird image, but I remember um, kind of, I don't know, back in the 80s, my mom had these like blue sandbag ankle weights. You guys know what I'm talking about with those things? Yeah, she didn't have time to exercise, but she could cook and clean with ankle weights and I guess get your exercise in. And I always picture this verse of this idea of running the race marked out for us, but like I, I picture like a marathoner trying to run 26.2 miles with these blue Velcro nasty sandbag ankle weights on and just how ridiculous that would look. And I feel like that's the life we live sometimes, that we're trying to run this race and we're weighed down either by sin or the everything else because uh, that's what that verse says. It says it could be sin, but it could be the everything else in life, that whatever is weighing you down and causing you to be weary and lose heart first Throw that off. Let us throw that off so we can run the race God has for us. And the way that we do that, secondly, verse two, it's by fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. You know, we sang it earlier in the East Auditorium with communion, and we're gonna sing it here and a little bit in the West Auditorium. This, this song, fix your eyes on Jesus, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and that all these things, it says, of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. You see, we grow weary and lose heart when we fix our eyes on the wrong thing. When we fix our eyes on a, polit like a political party or a candidate or the economy or 
foreign policy, when we fix our eyes there, I'm not saying these things aren't important. We know we're sent into these spaces that we should be a part of them. But when we fix our eyes on them, never fix your eyes on anything other than Jesus Christ. He is the pioneer of our faith. These other things, they are not the pioneers of our faith. They are not the ones setting the pace. It is Jesus Christ alone. And that's where we go wrong, when we fix our eyes on something other than the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. And so that's what we want to do in this palms up prayer that I, I kind of got this out of order, but that's okay. Um, that's what we want to do in this palms up prayer, that we want to give you the opportunity to let your palms face the sky so that we can do two things. One, we can let go. We can ask God to take away anything that is weighing us down and entangling us, but at the same time also be open-handed to receive whatever it is that God has for us. And so that's how we're gonna pray here. And so I'd invite all of you here, uh, both in the East Auditorium and the West, to just take the back of your hands and let them lay on the back of your knees as we pray to God these, this two-part prayer. We'll give you some space to do that, to let go, but at the same time, receive. And so let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your son, who has come to both take away and appropriately help us to receive. And so, Father, I pray for my friends in this room and in the other room that, as a church, that whatever is weighing us down, whatever ugly ankle weights that we've got our eyes fixed on, that we would let those just pass through our hands here this morning um, as you say you want to take that on. And so whether it's a sin that tangles or the things of this world that weigh us down, leaving us weary, and with loss of heart. May we not be left holding on to any of it. And so Lord, hear our prayer as we throw these things off to you. Father, with these weights removed from our hands, now with open space and palms up, we fix our eyes on you, the author, the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith, that we might now receive in its place what you have for us. And Lord, so may we receive from you. Father, now may we go filled with, um, of you, but into this world that others might know um, what many of us have experienced, uh, a life and an eternity while sent into this world is of you forever. In Jesus' name.